Welcome to Organising the Future with me, Andrew Parry. I'm Head of Investment at J.O. Hambro Capital Management. And the point of this podcast is to talk about sustainable investing. By that, we mean sustainable in a broad, multifaceted sense, economic as well as environmental and social, and looking at the full spectrum, indeed, of activity from input to impact. I'm not sure that there's uh, really a better place to start than with my guest today, Dr. Robert Eccles, a former professor at Harvard, a visiting professor at the Said Business School at Oxford, an advisor to the private equity firm KKR, and a friend. Bob is a prolific writer with his name on several books and a a regular columnist uh, on Forbes.com. Bob, it's a pleasure to have you here today, and welcome to this very first uh, episode of uh, Organising the Future. Nice to be here, Andrew, now that I've finally found the place. I know, we did challenge you a bit. It was a challenge. But we like intelligent guests. You know, but it, um, it was hard. Yeah, but you made it, and I that's made the it most and important. It's good thing. to be here. Now, you're an expert in quite a number of different fields, and one of those is integrating financial reporting with the non-financial activities that reflect a firm's impact on society and the environment. Now, what I'd love to talk to you today about are your thoughts on the future of sustainable investing. It's time we all went beyond the cliches and the marketing exercises and the tick box approach. And to have a look at what the future looks like, what comes beyond ESG. Very topical conversation. Oh, it is. And it's great to yeah, to be able to talk to you about this because I know you and I have had quite a number of different discussions on this subject, which are always entertaining as well as illuminating. And let's sort of start with, you know, this uh, ESG, dreaded acronym. And really, I think it's, let's talk about ESG, so fact or, or fiction. You know, I, you know, there's quite a lot of ESG scepticism that seems to have arisen in the last year or so. Yeah, I think if you go back to 12 months, the papers were full of how ESG outperformed over every known period was the solution to the world's ills. Yet here we are 12 months later with a rise in scepticism. We've had actually high-profile people like Desiree Fixler, formerly of DWS, and Tarek Fancy from BlackRock and and others uh, expressing different types of scepticism and criticism. And maybe even me coming to Joe Hambro to become a uh, head of investment rather than just head of sustainable. You know, I wanted to move outside of the echo chamber of um, of ESG. But you know, how, how are you seeing this debate and this rise of scepticism? Uh, about it and in the context of you know what we're here principally to do, which is to make our clients money. So um, let me start and, and let me ask your audience to forgive me if I'm telling them something they already know, but Andrew, you've already used an acronym without explaining it. So for those who don't know ESG, most people do, is environmental, social, and governance. And I think before addressing the question you ask, which is a very salient one, we should go back just a little bit in history when people said it's important to manage the environmental, social, and governance issues in the firm, uh, you know, the kind of general reaction was that's going to hurt returns, that they kind of had ESG conflated with philanthropy. And the good news is I think that that Rubicon has been crossed. So there's a recognition in the mainstream asset management community, not just kind of the boutique, 
sort of socially responsible investment community where it kind of all started with exclusions, and we'll get into that more later. Uh, and there's a lot of research that was done. You know, I did some of the early research. Professor George Seraphim at Harvard Business School has done a lot more that has demonstrated a correlation between good performance on the material, let me emphasize material, environmental, social, and governance issues, and financial performance over the long term. And long term is kind of six or seven years before you see the difference. It's not something that happens overnight. So I think that's a positive thing. So the, the change in narrative that ESG can be good for returns, I think is positive. Like everything in life, the pendulum goes too far the other way. And, uh, and everybody's out there trying to sell ESG as if it's the promised land. And so any fund that's labeled ESG, you're going to be able to have your cake and eat it too. Uh, you're going to be able to save the world. And ESG really isn't about saving the world. And we can get to the distinction between ESG and sustainability. And you're going to get superior returns. And so the skepticism that you're seeing, I think, is understandable. I think it's healthy. I think a lot of ways that these funds have been labeled uh, has been, you know, poor at best in a lot of cases. If you read some of these prospectuses, they'll use the word sustainability a bunch of times. You really don't have any sense as to what the criteria are they're picking, how they define what they think the CSG fund is. And so it's not a surprise that you see a movement in the regulatory community. I had dinner with some people at the FCA the other night. Uh, they're doing some interesting work I shouldn't talk about because it's not in the public domain. But um, you've got IOSCO, you've got the SEC looking into it. So there's kind of a truth and labeling issue as to whether something is an ESG fund. And right now, because there's no clear criteria other than what you've got out of SFDR, we can get to that later. At the very least, I think the asset manager that's marketing the ESG fund should explain what ESG means to them. And if they're also saying that it's making the world a better place, they need to explain how that's the case. Because ESG and sustainability there are different things. You know, ESG is really about a company's operations and activities, the work of the Sustainability Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, which I was the founding chair of. So look, you know, the material issues vary by sector. You know, there's 11 sectors, 77 industries. So manage those well. And, you know, it's good for long-term shareholder returns. But that's quite separate from are you making the world a better place? You're just managing the company in a responsible way. So now when you get to sustainable investing, which is kind of originally talked about as impact investing, which is more in the private markets and kind of niche, it's, okay, the company is being managed in whatever way it is. The focus is basically on the positive and negative externalities of the products and services. So I think you're seeing skepticism about ESG, understandably so. I think it's healthy. We need to kind of button that down. But then I think we need to get clarity about the difference between ESG and sustainability that you can be a very good ESG fund, you can be managing the material issues in a very responsible way, whatever particular industry you're in. And, you know, maybe you're not making the world a better place. Take an oil and gas company. I think it's more complicated than people think. Look, you could be an oil and gas company and you don't have any oil spills and you've got safety in the oil rigs and you've got a diverse board and workforce and, you know, gender equality and pay. Those are all ESG factors, but you're still producing oil that's producing externalities. And so then it raises the question of transition. So, I don't think we're quite ready, you know, kind of in a general conversation in the market to make a clear distinction between ESG and sustainability, although that's what they're trying to do with SFDR 8 and 9, and we can debate how effective that's going to be. But um, it's probably a longer answer than you wanted, but that's what I'm thinking about. 
There's a quality answer, though I'm going to pick you up on something okay. that you criticised me for starting with an acronym, and I counted that you slipped four in there at least. Did I really? Yeah, All I'm my afraid. SFDR was one? No. Okay, I apologise for there that. There we go. We'll let, we'll let you get away with the SEC, I think most people. Okay, they should know the SEC. But, but. And the FCA. I mean, we're in England. We are indeed. So good. I try to be local. Good. It's good to see that you're flexible. I always like to think I'm bilingual in English, English, and American English as well. So we, we have that in common. So if you're bilingual when you're in the States, do you drop all those extra vowels that you don't really need, or do you still use no, them? No, I still have to hit the T's, I'm afraid. Yeah, you kind of like it. Okay, yeah, fair enough. I, yeah, I think that um, inability to distinguish sometimes between ESG, environmental, social, and governance, sustainable, and impact even, which is sort of risen is one of the challenges. The way I tend to think about it is that, you know, using, picking up on a word that you use, complex, I think ESG is just a series of complex, nuanced inputs that vary across industry, across regions, and importantly, dynamically over time. And it's about getting the full range of information. So it's not that ESG make, it makes you outperform. It's that by not considering it, you don't have the full range of information, so you do a suboptimal goal. Sustainable is the outcome that you want to achieve sustainable financial returns from managing well your environmental impacts and your social consequences and how those are governed and you know that that's linked to financial returns you know that is still very important to keep doing that and then impact are our consequences of all our actions both you know the solutions that we can provide to some of the big problems in the world and then managing and mitigating the risks associated with that. And, you know, that word externalities is often used around sort of ESG influences and considerations. I always think that, you know, they can be viewed as potential risks that uh, can be internalized into business models. You know, think of how rules on gambling can change yep. overnight, and then it can all of a sudden it can really be internalized into business models and Macau casinos in recent years and the Chinese crackdown on corruption. Really good example yep. of that as an externality, as a latent risk in a business model. But don't you think it would be good? We've talked about this before. I'd love to see the term ESG investing go away. We've talked oh, about we're, this, we're together on this. You know, one. it's investing, ESG are factors. You know, where there's a five-factor model now instead <laughs> of a four-factor model that the financial economists like to talk about. Um, the material issues, pay attention to them, factor them into your investment decisions. Don't pretend that that's making the world a better place. And I think if we just said, now that we understand that these material issues matter, it's just part of the investment process. And so there's no, there's no ESG investing fund. A good fund pays attention to financial fundamentals, it pays attention you know, to the material sustainability issues, and, and it's just investing. I think impact is a different thing. But we'd all be better off if this term ESG investing in ESG funds were to just go poof. Yeah, uh, I always say there's no such thing as ESG investing. There is ESG in right. investing, Absolutely. and that is is the key to it. It's about how does it fit into the material issues affecting the, the long-term financial performance of a company. I think sometimes people should go back to uh, the, you know, the principles of responsible investing, what founded 2006. And that materiality issue is there in their six founding principles. Yep. So let's sort of move on a little bit and talk about some of the ways of you know, uh, implementing the, this thinking once you've moved beyond that there's no such thing as ESG investing. And to think a little bit about you know, the, the approaches, you know, there's a lot of 
screening. There's a lot of ranking of, uh, of, of data, which I always think is not a ranking of data, but a ranking of other people's opinions. Um, I know you've written on this in the past about the, the problems of um, ESG data providers not, not correlating. Is that getting any better? And, how, how, and with that in mind, how do you feel about the sort of debate of active versus passive in the um, in in the broader sustainable investing world so there's a couple of things kind of all get jumbled up together in this that we need to try and kind of pull apart a little bit i mean it's true that the esg ratings that you get from the different vendors i mean that wonderful paper by my friends at mit aggregate confusion shows that and they explain it uh, they're economists so they kind of explained it from a technical point of view i wrote a paper with a colleague of mine judith strola we're both sociologists and we really looked at it in terms of the social origins so if you go back to the origins of these, you know, the firms that we know today, known as, you know, MSCI and Sustainalytics and RepRisk, um, there were some kind of differences in how they got started. You know, were they focused on value? Were they focused on values? Uh, they used different methodologies. But the reason these firms came about was to serve as a proxy for the lack of quality reporting by companies to a set of standards on the material ESG issues. And so I think they served an important need. Um, there is confusion about them. What I'm finding the sophisticated investors, they're not relying upon any particular, in the passive funds, you see more of this, you know, any particular ESG rating agency scores to construct some kind of a product. The sophisticated ones will sort of look for differences. I think what needs to happen, and maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit here, but we need to have standards for sustainability reporting or for ESG reporting just like we have with financial reporting. Uh, we wouldn't have the capital markets today if we didn't have accounting standards and revenue recognition policies and, you know, here's what the profits are and it's, you know, kind of more or less what they are. But even then, you know, people have non-GAAP earnings and so forth. With the International Sustainability Standards Board, and they came out with exposure drafts for kind of its sustainability reporting framework and for climate disclosure, as those get put into place, and there's complex issues of how to do that, we won't get into, but as, as companies start to report to a set of standards on sustainability performance, just like they do financial performance, investors will have to, won't have to rely nearly as much on what the ESG rating agencies are and the sophisticated ones, as I said, you know, look for differences in the ratings and they're trying to get their own data. I think that the active managers will um, probably clearly use that information more than the passives, just like they use the financial information more, the passives kind of construct a product, I wouldn't be surprised because the passive products have to be put together in a relatively simple way to market them, that they will continue to use some kind of criterion, however clear it is, is another question in terms of how the fund is being marketed. So they may say, um, we're going to drop out the bottom 25% of companies based on their MSCI or Sustainalytics or Respiratory Rating. And, you know, the presumption is okay, you know, you can do that and but why are you doing it? Are you doing it because they're bad guys? And so you're telling people you're not investing in bad companies or because you think it's you know, hurting their performance. You could have an alternative investment thesis and say, we're going to invest in the bottom quartile ESG companies by some metric that we have reasons to believe there's a signal that that ESG performance is going to improve. And as that kicks in, as we were talking about earlier, it's going to improve their financial performance. So it's, again, it's sort of early stages, but... What I'm hoping will happen is that we'll be having less and less discussion about ESG ratings and more and more discussion about what the ESG performances of companies reported according to a set of standards from the ISSB 
just like we have with financial reporting, which we take for granted. We take those standards for granted. They always haven't been around. Yeah, I, I remember 30 years ago, which sadly dates me, we didn't have a cash flow statement working with the, the accounting industry to introduce cash flow statements. And there's quite a lot of brouhaha back then on something now that we rely on as a central part of financial analysis. Cash is king sort of mentality. So, you know, I, I welcome, you know, the the rise of you know, sustainable accounting well, standards. Well, I think another thing that's important to put into this, these are all social constructs. Mm. You know, these aren't, you know, whether it's the income statement, the balance sheet, cash flow, these aren't derived from the laws of physics where there's one technically perfect right answer. You know, there's a social construct where you get a consensus, mm. you know, through a standard setting process, which is always complicated with differences of opinion. And we say this is going to be what the representation of the world is. And then people use those financial statements as a starting point, and they do their own analysis, and they do their own adjustments, and they factor in other issues. So right now, I think that there's a silly concern on the part of some that, oh, gee, financial reporting, it's so clear, and it's material, and the sustainability stuff, it's like, it's just values, and, you know, it's not easy to quantify, and you can't really have a set of standards. Um, no, I mean, we continue to change and debate financial reporting standards. Goodwill goes this way, goodwill goes that way. So with sustainability reporting, we're just at the starting point, and it's going to be debated and contested and changed. That's life. Yeah, it's an adaptive system. Uh, it's complex, and you know, it, it's all about interpreting the information, not being handed to Correct. it on a, uh, on a plate. I think there is going to be one other benefit um, from accounting standards on sustainable reporting and that's a democratization of data at the moment it's extremely expensive to buy all these different yeah, esg yeah. data sets retail investors can't get that retail investors but even smaller mid-sized pension funds find it a real yeah. struggle and so that that democratization of access to data i think is going to be a, a really important element and it's going to open up sustainable investing to a wider body of people I want to sort of you know, change tack a little bit, and it's sort of you know, thinking a little bit from what you said about the bottom 25% and improvers. Role of engagement. Now, engagement is a topic that has been rapidly on the rise. Over here in the UK, it's enshrined in the UK stewardship mm -hmm. reports and all the requirements that we have, which is great. You know, I think people are no longer, our investors are no longer absentee landlords. They now use their voice. They use their vote. But is there a, a danger that it becomes more of a, a, a fig leaf for inaction in that it's about volume of report uh, of engagement over quality of reporting and, you know, actually leading to tangible, measurable outcomes? And can you even have measurable outcomes in, in engagement? I mean, I think the risk that you're talking about is real. I do think that uh, increasing attention to engagement and stewardship uh, is important. Because if you look at historically, it was like, I like the stock, I'll keep it. I don't like the stock, I'm going to sell it. If you believe the premise about ESG being related to financial performance, if you've got an effective engagement process that's improving ESG and you've got a sufficiently long-term view, uh, then you're going to get the benefits of financial performance. Now, there's issues around basically the companies that are not doing, or the investors that are not doing the engaging, they get a free rider. If you're doing it, you're creating a public good. Uh, companies can be a little bit duplicitous. It's like they all want long-term shareholders, but it's like just trust us and we don't really need to talk to you and so, you know, kind of go away. It's like if you want long-term shareholders, you've got to engage with them. I think that, uh, and this is a new research project I've started, 
this question of engagement and active engagement and what the people at CalSTRS who, along with Charlie Penner, my friend Charlie Penner, did the Engine Number 1 campaign, are calling activist stewardship. I think we need to kind of raise the game. And, and I actually like, this will be shocking to some people, particularly my friends in the corporate community, I think the activist investors, the activist hedge funds that are all seen as corporate raiders, I think that was true in the past. I think that's changed a lot. Uh, they are a mechanism for corporate accountability. They do careful research. They decide, you know, what companies need improving. When you get to it, mostly it's not rocket science. It's pretty obvious things. They put up a chunk of money. Uh, they know kind of how to work to create change. Most of the changes happen behind the scenes. The reputation comes from the things that hit the public domain. But they can't make these changes because of the way the regulations have changed if they don't get the support of other big active managers in the passives. But it's like, who, who's going to be the group that sort of initiates that? The passives aren't going to initiate it, and even most active managers aren't going to initiate it. So I wish there was more activist investors, and they're starting to have this broader aperture where they realize the importance of ESG for financial performance, because they're like the Navy SEALs, right? They're the shock troops that kind of go out there, and then you bring in the heavy artillery. And so one of the things that I'm trying to, to figure out in this research project is to what extent what the sort of activist investors do, which of those techniques could be brought into more active management where you're being a little bit more, shall we say, aggressive. The challenge on that is how do the economics work? Are you thinking about the engagement team as a cost center? Or are you thinking about the engagement team as contributing to the financial returns? then that gets you back to the asset owners. So are the asset owners who think engagement is important and they want to get these little reports that could be ticked the boxes, if they think it's important, are the mandates that they're giving the asset managers taking that into account in terms of the fees they pay? And do they have their own way of evaluating what effective engagement is on the part of their asset managers? So are they putting their money where the mouth is? And a lot of active managers that I talk to feel like they're caught between a rock and a hard place. You've got the asset owners saying, you know, ESG is important, sustainability is important. You're our asset manager. You need to be paying attention to this. Uh, it's just in your mandate. You're not going to get any more money. And then they're trying on the other side to go and deal with these companies with relatively limited resources. And so I think that's an industry that the in industry, uh, an issue that the industry needs to grapple with. I should introduce you to a few of our uh, portfolio managers who I describe as uh, sort of radically engaged. Um, you know, I'm not quite sure I use the word activist. I think maybe we could retire that and find another word, but certainly forceful in their engagement uh, with, with companies and looking for change. But want to do it in a constructive way because, as you said, Bob, it's about improving financial outcomes for our clients who retire, you know, require, re, re, rely on those investments for their retirement or their savings objectives. But what you said is important because basically the, the world, so in Animal Farm, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. And in the corporate community, the CFO is like the first-class animal and the CSO, chief financial officer, chief sustainability officer, no more acronyms are the second-class citizens. It's been that way in the asset management community. The portfolio managers are the first-class citizens. The engagement, sustainability, proxy voting people are the second-class citizens. I think that's changing, but you need to have, when the portfolio managers aren't relying upon the, quote, ESG work to be done by the separate group over here, and we've gotten away from ESG investing, we're just doing investing that takes into account ESG factors, when they're doing what you say your, some of your portfolio managers are doing, 
that is a sea change because you have dramatically expanded the bandwidth of the extent to which an asset manager can engage with a company rather than relying upon a little team of two or three or five or even 20 or 30 in some of the biggest asset managers. And so if this is seen as part of the work of the portfolio manager, I think it's great. And the two things go hand in hand, factoring in the ESG issues and their investment decisions and then engaging with the companies when they talk to them about how they're going to improve their performance and standards so that we can agree upon what the performance level is, just like we can agree upon what the revenues and the profits are. That'll help improve the quality of this engagement because we won't be arguing about what well, you measured it this way and how does that really work and they measure it that way. And so, again, it's kind of plumbing and it's kind of not sexy. But these standards for this information are really an important part of the underpinning to make ESG real and get away from all of the kind of greenwashing that's going on in these funds that we talked about earlier. No, I fully agree. We don't do engagement as an overlay. It's not a separate activity. It's done by the portfolio managers. Each of the portfolio managers vote according to the, the interests of their clients. The portfolio managers that's interesting. Informed by the sustainable investment sure. team who have the data and subject matter experts. But the, no, we, we find that we get a much better uh, audience with, with management because the capital allocators are talking. Yep. You know, yep. And we're talking about the financial performance and the material issues. No, they're not always related to environmental and social. They are still very related to governance and they can be to do with financial performance. Well, and the relationship between the two as we started out in the beginning with integrated reporting. But the other thing that happens when the portfolio managers are talking to the CFO and the CEO about the material ESG issues, then that makes it real for the company as opposed to the CFO saying, well, that sustainability stuff isn't my job. You know, the boys and girls over there in the ESG group, you know, they're going to take care of that um, and I'm doing kind of the real stuff. And so, again, that your portfolio managers are having those conversations raises the level of awareness and appreciation and understanding in the part of the executives in the companies who make the capital allocation decisions and I think that's good. It's like an old trick of mine of asking the chief sustainability officer who they reported to. If they said the head of HR, then I knew their, their, their views weren't taken into account. But it was the CEO or the CFO. Completely agree. Yeah, and it's the same with who's doing your engagement. Is it the portfolio manager and analyst as part of the capital allocation decision? Yep. Or is it somebody remote uh, and isolated from that decision? It's a good parallel. I agree. It's a good, decent uh, parallel. In terms of you know where we are at the moment um, in the world, it's a pretty febrile place. It's it quite a, a depressing place with the war in Ukraine. Um, geopolitics has really come come to the fore. I've felt a sort of degree of unease of people using, you know, the the war in in the Ukraine as a as a, almost like a marketing of ESG. And uh, you know, how do you feel about you know sort of geopolitics and its role in in you know the bigger environmental and social issues do you see you know uh, the russia russia's invasion of ukraine as a an esg issue or 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 is it something more profound and are, are we going to now as a consequence of this have a, a sea change in our attitude to energy and um, and defense companies in in sustainable portfolios I think it's much more profound than an ESG issue. And I think anybody that's trying to use the war in Ukraine to go out and market an ESG fund, I mean, kind of shame on them. I can, you know, excluding, you know, Russian companies. And generally, I think exclusion doesn't work on an industry basis. But when you're talking about geopolitics, then it's a completely different thing. So who would want to support, you know, Russian companies that are generating profits that are being used to 
kill people in Ukraine. So, but that's really not about ESG. You know, that's about kind of what it means to be living in civilization. I think two issues that have come up, and you suggested them, that are very interesting about this, you know, war, uh, which are sort of raising some fundamental questions that need to be addressed. You see it with defense. So defense stocks were easy to exclude. You know, you'd have, okay, this is a green fund. Don't have any tobacco. We don't have any defense. You know, no landmines, maybe no oil and gas. Now it's, you know, perfectly green fund filled with fangs that have got their own set of problems, which I'm going to get into. Well, is defense a bad thing? You know, if you've got sort of capabilities to sort of keep a country from being, you know, taken over by another country. So Sweden, you know, the Swedish pension fund had uh, only a couple of years ago had an exclusion policy on defense and they reversed it. And so I think that's been instructive. You know, we need to think a little bit more carefully when we're excluding. Why are we excluding? You can exclude for value reasons or values reasons. If you think it's like a stock that's going to go down the tubes and you want to own it, that's one thing. Um, value reasons, I think, are kind of coming into place now with, um, you know, the exclusion in, in Russia. But I think with the case of defense, clearly the stocks are going to go up because there's going to be more demands. Germany has now said it's going to spend – 2% of its GDP. But I think that's a very particular issue. I think the more profound question uh, is has to do with the energy transition. So Biden's getting a lot of heat for opening up lands, you know, for drilling, you know, more natural gas. What you see happening is a term that hasn't been used all that often until quite recently, energy security. So now we're being confronted with some tough choices. Okay, we don't want to have coal, but do we want to be captive to Russia or since we can't have all these renewables, you know, overnight, are we going to open up the spigot a little bit more for even oil? Or should we reconsider nuclear? So that's another one of those things is like, no, we don't want to have nuclear. I'm actually not in agreement with that. So when you start balancing these geopolitical issues of energy security and national security, if a country like Russia has been making all of this money off of oil, now they're, you know, kind of doing this blackmail thing in Poland and Bulgaria. Um, what I read... There's a paid thing today in the FT that I haven't read. I read the title, so I know it well. I know this yeah. title as well. Gone into it in depth. You know, went into it in depth. And basically, kind of Goldman says, as soon as I help with the energy transition. So my guess is oil prices are clearly gone up, and there'll be more oil and gas that's coming out, and, you know, people are going to be upset about that. And I get that, but if what this does, it's a wake-up call, not just from an environmental point of view, important, but from a geopolitical energy security point of view, and that sort of gets some people to turn on the afterburners for what they're doing with renewables and, you know, conservation and all the different things we need to deal with and hydrogen capture and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I think in a, in a funny and ironic way, putting aside the terrible tragedy in Ukraine, uh, this will probably, when we look back on it 10 years from now, uh, it will have speeded up the energy transition. I mean, look at how rapidly countries in Europe are basically trying to adapt to be not dependent upon any source of energy from Russia. You know, so they're going to have to come up with an alternative in the short term. It'll be more like gas from fracking or out of the United States or, you know, out of the Middle East or Venezuela or whatever. But then they're going to realize, you know, that's not a long-term solution. And then when renewables are going to be the long-term solution. So uh, in this kind of tragic time, I think there's a little bit of the silver lining of what's going to happen with the energy transition. I think that is one of the factors that is behind uh, with inflation is that it can actually spur innovation. Yeah. And you're going to see it, as you, you quite eloquently pointed out there in the green energy transition, pure economics. If it's a lot cheaper, 
to to use green energy in the short term, maybe geopolitical concerns or knee-jerk reaction into fossil fuels. But in the medium to long term, the economics become more and more compelling and the transition just accelerates and will accelerate as we scale. But also there's going to be innovation elsewhere because of inflation. If you look at going back to more boring economics, if you look at world economy over the last 30 years, we've had a lack of total factor productivity growth. Yeah, that is amazing. Well, partly why? It's because of cheap cheap availability of labor. As labor becomes more expensive, I think we're going to see a shift in an innovation away from the delivery of goods and services, you know, the platform companies, and much more to innovation in the production of goods and services. And, you know, that's inflation is, is very helpful for that. You know, it's it, not rather not have the inflation personally given i have lpg to heat my home but yeah we can sometimes see silver linings and i think that's why we could be at a really interesting regime change in markets but that's maybe a a topic for another no but look but there's like everything in life right there's the flip side to it and the flip side is that you improve labor productivity Um, you're adding less jobs per unit of economic output and so this whole question of job creation uh, is a big deal. You have, you know, through COVID, the number of people, what is the term for, my wife told me this, is basically white men that have sort of dropped out of the workforce. You yeah, know? The great resignation. The great resignation is like, you know, I'm done. So that's not good because people need to lead meaningful lives, you know, if they want to have a family, um, both men and women. And, you know, where are the jobs? And I think this is one of the concerns. It's understandable. People that are working in the traditional energy sector you know, it's easy to say, listen, we don't need oil, we need solar. It's like, well, okay, great, but what does that mean for me? You know, am I going to have a job? Do I have to move to California to make solar panels or whatever? So this, this, and this question of a just transition and the social dimension on this, I think is, is really, is really fundamental because if you don't, if you don't get people that feel threatened by the energy transition from a livelihood point of view, you know, understanding that, you know, it's good for them, it's good for their children. You're not going to have the political will, particularly in the United States, which is, I mean, it's kind of crazy how politicized this thing has become. And you see in the reaction to the SEC, you know, disclosure, proposal on disclosure, where, you know, this is not a political issue, but it's been made very much that way in the United States, and it's very destructive. And you have these two camps that have just dug in and don't talk to each other. And when you've got a situation like that, it's very hard to get useful public policy. I think your point, as already touched on briefly there about labor, the labor market, you know, the post-COVID experience has reached, you know, I think it's recalibrated the way that many people are uh, thinking and many people are realizing they got underpaid for really boring jobs. Yep. And they're just saying, no Forget more. Yeah, and, and, that, and I think that, that that's healthy. Not what we were expecting as an outcome. But anyway, um, Bob, just a couple of quick questions sure. before we, we wrap up. Yeah, first, it's a bit of an observation. I'm, I'm sure everybody would like to know uh, that you're in the top 5% um, for your age group, of, uh, or top 0.5%, I think, of the most strongest people in the world. You're a, a power lifter. How did you get into the, uh, into the power lifting game? Well, first of all, Andrew, thank you very much for bringing that up. I mean, it's the thing that I'm the most proud of in my life with all of my degrees and my various accomplishments. It's an interesting story. Briefly, um, I'm not a natural athlete. I went to MIT. That says it all. Uh, my son is athletic, went to Princeton, was on the crew team, was very good, and got some weights one summer to stay in shape, and um, said, you ought to try it. 
So I thought, okay, I've never lifted weights in my life. I'm 60 years old. Bench, never was any good at the bench. Squat, pretty good. I can squat 250, 260 pounds. Deadlift was my best. And I thought, okay, I want to be able to get 300 pounds. Took a while, but I got there. As much of a mental challenge as a physical challenge. And then I wanted to do 400. And COVID came along, so I could do the Magnuson Ortmeyer deadlift program. Very rigorous. Every Monday, the weights go up by a certain amount. So um, at the end of 2020, I hit 405 and then 410. And then Rogue Fitness sent me this thing because they were recruiting for something. And for my age group um, and weight class, I am in the 99.8th percentile in the deadlift. Oh, I, I did you down. I said you did me down. Five. You sorry, didn't give that. me enough credit. I mean, my deadlift percentile is higher than my IQ percentile. And I'm very proud of that. And to put it in context for the audience, my 28-year-old son is very strong, goes to the gym a lot, and you deadlift nearly twice as much as well, he's deadlifting. there you go. But Andrew, he's young. 28 60 uh, and 6 foot 2, he's, he's got to up his game up. Yeah, but, but look, if he's 28 and I started at 60, I mean, you know, you should tell him he should blow past 400 pounds, 186, 187 kilos for those who don't do the translation. Uh, if he's 6'2", man, he ought to be good for 500, 550 pounds. Yeah, Set the bar high for your son, Andrew. I will. But uh, you always intimidate me when we have Zoom calls because you put up that uh, wallpaper of your I squat know. rack behind me. And it is quite a scary amount of weight, I, I can know. assure. I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad the effect is what I intended it to be. Oh, it is. I'm totally I, intimidated. I for a reason. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> and not just by the, the IQ score either. And so one final question, you know, uh, I'm going to ask all, all my guests, uh, Bull and Bear, what, what's one thing that you're optimistic about going forward and one thing that you're pessimistic? And those are not stock recommendations, but more, more general. What am I optimistic about? Um, you know, this is a little prosaic, but I am, I am optimistic that in the kind of strange little world of standard setting that I live in between the SEC and the International Sustainability Standards Board and the European Financial Reporting Advisory Group, so I'm not using any acronyms, <laughs> we will lay the groundwork for having a solid base of reporting on ESG just like we have with financial reporting. I think it'll take a while. I think it will take a time, you know, take time for this to become into effect. It's one of those things that's not going to get the evening news, but I'm quite optimistic about that. You know, and if you kind of see how rapidly this has changed, I mean, I've been banging on the issue of standards sustainability reporting for 30 years, and you can't see a curve on a podcast, but it's been like nothing in the last two or three years. It's like accelerated. So I'm optimistic about that. Uh, what I am pessimistic about, and this is particularly in the U.S. context, I am pessimistic about the political situation. I am pessimistic about the political polarization. I am pessimistic that the Republican Party has basically become a cult and that, you know, people are afraid of, you know, saying anything against Trump and to admit that January 6th was an insurrection. And so I think the GOP isn't the GOP that I knew it. And I'm not quite as depressed, but I'm pretty depressed with the direction that the Democratic Party is going. They're a circular firing squad. You look what happened when they were trying, trying to pass some of these bills. And the extent to which the Democratic Party is devolving into identity politics I think is very dangerous, you know, when it's like everything is some narrowly defined group, whatever it is around gender, around race, around ethnicity. I think these are th important things. 
But, you know, my wife was telling me a story of a woman from Massachusetts, the People's Republic of Massachusetts, went to the Democratic National Convention. She was very happy to be there. And then there was the breakout groups. And there was, there was no breakout group she was invited to. She was a straight white woman. So there was like, you know, nothing for her to do. And I'm thinking, wow, if what you're doing is organizing everything around, you know, those variables as opposed to let's have breakout groups on issues that are important, guns, abortion, taxes, you name it. And we want to have everybody in this broad tent, whatever their gender, you know, whatever their race, you know, whatever their age, coming together to deal with these issues. I think that's just much healthier. And so you have just like the kind of craziness on the right. Then you've got this super, super, super wokeness on the left. And then they feed into each other, right? Because it gives ammunition to the right. And then the right gets crazy. And then, you know, the woke say, look at how crazy the right is. And then they become more woke. And then the right says, you know, look at how, you know, woke these people are. And so I'm pessimistic about that. Well, Bob, it's been a pleasure as always. And thank you for your time and for absolutely fascinating thanks, conversation. Thanks for the opportunity to have a chat, Andrew. Thank you. Yeah, one, thank you, of course, to our listeners. If you would like to learn more about investment opportunities at Johanbro, please do contact your representative. Details about us, about our funds and our approach to investment are on our website, johcm.co.uk. Thank you.